Hi, and welcome to CM Conversations. I'm Jordan Bergen, a senior consultant in the surgical market here at Charlton Morris. In this live episode, I am joined by a panel of senior leaders in the women's health space from across the globe. Karen Lesham is CEO at Ocken Healthcare and a mentor at 8400 The Health Network, has been recognized as a World Economic Forum tech pioneer for 2022, amongst other impressive achievements. Barry McCann is founder and CEO of Newer Surgical and brings a wealth of experience in surgical obstetrics and innovation to this discussion. Angela Dotson is COO of Alter Sciences, board member and a medtech angel investor. She'll be providing strategic insights to operational strategy for healthcare. Together, these guests offer a diverse range of perspectives on the latest developments and challenges being faced in women's health. Without further ado, here it is, enjoy. Um, so yeah, what I'd like to do is firstly introduce our uh, first topic of this conversation, and it's a it's a bit of an introduction into femtech and women's health. And um, so this question is addressed to to all of our panel. Really, um, it'd be great if you could explain what femtech and women's health are, what products and therapy areas are a pro- uh, priority right now in the space. Sure, well, I can kick off if you like. Um, as we, we probably all have our own um, interpretations of 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 femtech, but. Um, I think for me, it, it's very clearly uh, any product or device or um, offering that's going to improve outcomes for 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 women or or primarily women. Um, so I, I suppose in for for us, it is kind of we're focusing in maternal health outcomes, and I suppose that is one of the the big kind of growth areas I think at the moment. In addition to, I suppose, menstrual health, maybe uh, fertility, um, that's where I suppose I see a lot of growth going on at the moment. Um, so I'll, I'll hand it over to maybe Karen or Angela to just kind of give give their introduction on it. Okay, thank you. So, like um, like Barry, I agree with everything that he said. You know, the I mean, to me, the fintech space just encompasses all things women's health, everything from the mental aspect of it, um, hormonal aspect of it, the reproductive side of it, um, the you know conception side of it. Just, I mean, every part of, of what a woman is, it's that is femtech. So any type of technology, any type of pharmaceutical, any type of anything that as it relates to a woman's body and um, women's health is to me what femtech represents. Fantastic. And then we'll finish off with Karen. So I I sort of want to move away from femtech as a word, because um, I think for a lot of people, it uh, really kind of um, insinuates uh, digital health. Um, But when you look at femtech or female technology, um, I like to use the broader word of women's health. Um, And I think when we look at women's health, it's not enough to look at fertility or maternal health or reproductive health. We need to really look what affects women disproportionately. Uh, If it's mentally, like Angie said, if it's in our hearts, our bones, um, our uteruses, uh, our breasts. So we we have things that affect us disproportionately as compared uh, to men, but we also have specific indications that affect us. And so I really would like to see us uh, open up to a lot more opportunities for more than half of the world's population, I think that we're we're building uh, a segment, uh, which is you know not easy for me to say because how can this not be a segment already? Uh, but we are building it and creating a lot of um, interest around it, uh, and I think we're in the right direction. No, fantastic. Well, thank you for for all of your impacts there. As someone who's a, I guess a recruiter in the space, you know, it's the disparity in the terms femtech and women's health is, as you mentioned, I do see it as more. On the application side, when I hear the word femtech, I think of digital health, I feel of mental health applications, um, whereas women's health, I've, I see more of you know gynecology, obstetrics, etc. So, um, thank you for clarifying the, the sort of difference there, and that's certainly what I notice from the outside in, as someone who's not an expert in their space. So that's uh, really good to know. Um, the next sort of question that I want to move on to, and we'll probably start with Barry, is um, what does the current fundraising landscape look like specifically in women's health? Sure. Um, <laughs> yeah. In the yeah Barry, what does it look like? <laughs> yeah. Can you, can you see the sleepless um, nights are affecting my eyes? The, um, I think even if we leave 
women's health aside or you know uh, focusing on women's health i think fundraising in general at the moment is really diff- difficult you know i think you know um globally uh, it's a challenging economy um uh, there's a lot of amazing companies out there raising money some of them are big companies that are raising series you know abc rounds and you know as a startup that's raising you know amongst our first rounds that becomes more and more challenging because you're you're trying to look for some of that same money. Um, and I think it's it's probably worth pointing out as well that a huge amount of the companies in women's health are at that early stage of startup. They've really kind of been um, founded within the last maybe three to five years. So majority are probably raising their maybe seed Series A round. Um, so I suppose to go more specific into the, the women's healthcare space, uh, for, for me, I think it, it is challenging. I think there's a huge history there of um, women's healthcare being underfunded. That's clearly documented everywhere. Um, I think what doesn't help is that there's very few funds that are dedicated to women's health, even still. Um, and I think I'll reference um, something that I kind of, I go back to every now and again, it's, it's, um, Fem Health Insights by Dr. Um, uh, Brittany Bretto. And so, I mean, their annual report from last year, I think she stated that there are only about seven funds that are dedicated to women's health exclusively. Uh, majority of those are in the US or that only invest in US companies. Uh, and, and also not all of those actually have funds. They're still raising their own fund. So, I mean, that lack of funding, I think, impacts all of the, the companies that are trying to raise money uh, in, in the women's healthcare space. I would really like to add to that. Um, and, and thanks, Barry. I agree 100% with everything you say. But in addition to that, even these funds uh, that invest and invest actively in women's health, I can tell you that we have at least two funds out of those seven that, that have invested into Ocon. The checks are very, very small. Um, one of the things that you know always worries me about women's health is that we do have a lot of little companies, right? So we have companies that are doing diagnostics and companies that are doing devices and companies um, that are doing uh, um, all kinds of digital apps. But when you look at therapeutics and you look at something that can really change the landscape for women, this requires a lot of money. We need tens of millions of dollars to do research. We're going into clinical studies that require thousands of women we need money to do this research. And this research is very dedicated and focused on women, right? For Ocon, it's focused on the uterus, let's say. And so while we do have some funds and, and I see a lot of, of, of women, especially really hopping on, but also men, um, still the check sizes are so small and that's what's really frustrating. And what's also frustrating, I, I work a lot in the space. I try to help a lot of companies. I have a lot of connections. Uh, even with fundraising, and you see that, you know, one product companies, uh, it's even harder for them, even though uh, it's not in uh, the women's health space, but one product companies, so we have to think different, we have to think of what our unique value proposition is, we have to think how we can enlarge uh, um, the scope of what we do. Uh, Ocon recently rebranded to really demonstrate that we have a few projects, you know, uh, up and coming. So, these are things that we need to start thinking about, maybe putting some companies together, looking at different aspects of women's health. And, and maybe in that way, it's so hard to imagine uh, uh, doing so, but in that way, maybe attract a lot more cash. And I think that when we exit and then when we have a lot more mergers and acquisitions and IPOs, I think that will also lead investors to believe that, okay, this is an interesting space. I speak to investors all the time, big funds, and they say, you know, cardiology is easy, ophthalmology is easy, cancer is easy, women's health, is that even a, a you know, an, a, an area? And so I think it's changing, but it's still, I agree with Barry, extremely difficult. And I agree with both of them. I know, you know, just from my own experience as being in a Series A fundraising um, place now, it is just eye-opening that people just don't understand what the women's health space is about. They know nothing about women's health or very little. And so that gives them a lot of pause to want to invest because nobody wants to invest in something that they're not really, really familiar with. And so, you know, that has been the challenge of going out and speaking to, especially, um, you know, men 
about investing into Alta Science. It's, you know, that look of they don't really know about contraception. They don't really understand why it's really important. So really, why are you asking me to give you, you know, money or try to invest in this? And, and it's not just, you know, select to our company. I mean, this is what, you know, every, every women's healthcare startup company faces daily. And so, you know, I think a big part is just getting more awareness and more conversation going about, you know, women's health and stop making it. I feel like women's health is almost like a taboo topic. Nobody wants to talk about because it's like, oh goodness, you know, nobody wants to talk about a woman's uterus. Nobody wants to talk about women's breasts. Nobody wants to talk about, you know, all these things, but yet it's part of our human body. I mean, it's, it's the things that we were given and, and, you know, they, they have got to be taken care of just like anything else. And so the medical advancement in technology um, has got to be there. And I think that's our biggest challenge is really trying to make people see that women's health, the, the woman's body and all parts of the woman's body is just as important as focusing on cardiology or you know, neurology or anything else that is exciting. Women's health needs to become as exciting as all these other platforms. And until we get there, I think we're always going to have a challenge. So I just think that that is um, where we are and where the opportunities lie for us to be able to create more funding coming into companies such as Alta Science or just other women's health companies in general. It is sad to see as well. So, you know, one of my parts of my job is to reach out to, you know, companies in this space. And um, sadly enough, one of the common things I often see is sounds like a great person, sounds like a great candidate. We just don't have funding at the moment. And, you know, I hear this all the time across every market, but um, certainly in women's health, like the, the intensity of it, the, the, the more often um, that's said, it does really make you think like it really is an area that's lacking and struggling. Um, and it's sad to see as well, um, you know, other areas and segments are getting all this funding, whereas I believe from what I've read online, it's only maybe 5% of what they're actually achieving is going into women's health. And if you split the population, it's certainly not 5% of women, uh, to say the least. Mm -hmm. um, just wanted to remind the audience right now that there is a Q&A section at the end. So if you do have any questions on anything you've just heard from either Barry, Angie or Karen, please feel free to, to write them into the, the Q&A section now. Um, so what I'd like to do now is to, to move on to our uh, next areas, which is to talk about social and economic boundaries in women's health. Um, so my first question really is to, uh, I'm going to address it to you, Andy, you've not gone first yet. So um, how can we make women's health more equitable and what's being done currently in the space? Oh my goodness. I mean, it's it's lacking a great deal. I think I think there's Again, going back, in my opinion, I think it's being able to break down the barriers of first being able to acknowledge that this is an important conversation that needs to be had. It needs to be recognized that all women, no matter what background you're from, no matter what color your skin, no matter where you live, it doesn't matter. These, these things that affect us health-wise affect all women. And so for the socioeconomic um, piece of it, we need to make sure that we are looking at areas that are very rural, very are underfunded in general, and making sure that we are taking care of all women, not just the women that, you know, have opportunity to be able to get to the best specialist or the people, you know, the doctors that really can understand what is going on. What you see, and I live in a very rural area in Southwest Virginia, and I see it firsthand. Um, the lack of great health care is real. And until we start breaking down these barriers of being able to have these conversations with physicians who can truly educate their patient population and be able to have that outreach, um, I mean, it, we're going to struggle with it across across all spectrums, all across the globe. Thank you very much there, Angie. And I think uh, I could see Karen itching to get involved there. If you've got anything <laughs> to add to that, Karen. No, I, I just want to echo uh, what uh, Angie is saying. Um, I think that this is one of the things that lead us as a woman-led company is to really not only be able to contribute to the health and well-being and uh, opportunities and choices women have, but also to make it truly accessible. And one of the things that we do in the R&D 
is to make sure that we dumb down our products so that they could be used not only by gynecologists, but almost with any healthcare professional. Um, it could be used in the communities where women don't have to have access to hospitals. Uh, they don't cost a lot of money. They're able to kind of, you put it in and you set it and forget it. These are not daily pills that affect us or not, you know, surgeries in hospitals. And so with that in mind, and that's really our mindset at Ocon also is to really make uh, products, projects, uh, health accessible. Um, and so we always want to make it the cheapest. We always want to dumb it down. We always want to make sure that it's something that is very safe and effective. Um, and I think that's the key. Uh, and I think the more solutions out there that can lower the costs of care, but not uh, diminish the health and safety aspects of care, uh, but actually also increase uh, them, uh, that would be great. Thank you very much. And, uh, and Barry, do you have anything to, to add on to the end of that? Yeah, I suppose. And again, agreeing with um, both speakers before me, but it's really a, it's kind of a hot topic at the moment, and um, which is a good thing. But unfortunately, it's been it's it's in the news for all the wrong reasons. And I think you know there was a recent global report that stated that it's going to take I think 132 years um, to close that gender gap um, in, in kind of healthcare equity and. Unfortunately, the pandemic has made a lot of that worse. And um, I actually made note of um, there was a Harvard paper, and I suppose important to get my facts right here. So I, just, I have the paper in front of me. Um, a Harvard paper just recently stated that uh, due to the pandemic, disruptions in family planning um, meant that there was over 12,000 women worldwide that didn't have access to birth control and it resulted in 1.4 million unplanned pregnancies. So that's just on top of everything else that's going on with the, you know, the inequity around women's health. Um, and I, you know, I certainly think it all kind of comes back to the, I suppose, women's healthcare being underfunded, but then under-researched as well. And you know, until when we look at the up until mid 30 years ago. Um, women weren't included in clinical trials. Um, even now, women are underrepresented in the clinical trials. And all of that has a knock on of suitable medications, pharma drugs, uh, devices, products. They aren't being tailored to women's healthcare. And right. I suppose until that changes, and, and there's still a significant gap there between, you know, in, in even today, the majority of people in clinical trials are men and you know in some cases that's five to one in some cases it's it's kind of you know seven to three but there is a significant gap and i suppose until all of that changes and, and at least levels out or in certain cases where you've got um say cardiovascular disease and i suppose we were, we were talking about you know people find it easier to invest maybe in cardiovascular disease or cardiovascular products because it's a well-known area um, uh, cardiovascular disease is the number one killer for women, uh, certainly in, in the US. I'm not too sure if that's a global uh, stat, but certainly in the US. Um, however, I think 70% um, of people in, in cardiovascular um, uh, R&D activities are men. And, I, and until we kind of, you know, level that playing field, we're still going to have that kind of... Um, equity gap in uh especially in women's healthcare. well thank you very much for going into to great depth there and um and so it leads me to to move on to my next question really which is um addressing the issue of um, products not being accessible uh, in different countries um, how can this um, be worked on across 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 the globe really um, you know, that's, uh, you know, an interesting question. I spoke today to a conference organizers in the UK. Um, and today, you know, as as young startups or startups that don't have, you know, all the money in the world, we have to make choices. Where do we regulate our products? And when we have to make a choice where to regulate our products, this also goes into the reimbursement space. This also goes into, you know, where can we have the biggest or best return on investment also for our investors as well. And when you look at the world, you see that it's so um, diverse in terms of the regulatory pathways that you have to go. And now with the UK and it's Brexit, it makes it so hard because once we had a CE mark, right? 
And every country around Europe and even outside of Europe was like, great, CE, we approve that, let's go. But now we have to do a separate regulatory path for the UK, of course, a separate regulatory path for um, the United States, a regular, a, a, a different path for, for China, for India, for, uh, for Japan, uh, for Brazil. It makes it extremely difficult uh, to be able to allow access to all women uh, when there are such hurdles immediately starting with regulatory, then with market access and reimbursement. We'll talk about that in a minute. There's also some really great questions uh, in the Q&A that I believe uh, uh, we should look at about uh, clinical trials. Maybe we just want to do that at the end. But uh, it's really difficult to uh, gain traction and get these products everywhere uh, when you have such regulatory hurdles, for sure. Thank you very much, Karen. And uh, Angie, Barry, would any of you guys like to take over? Because I, this drives me nuts. Oh my goodness! Uh, I was just speaking um, to someone uh, yesterday from Tel Aviv, and uh, we were talking about you know just going through the process of getting FDA approval and and all of this. And even here in the U.S., that process is such a tedious process. And personally, I feel in women's health, it's even almost harder because they're wanting all of this data, which goes then back to the underfunding of needing the funds to make sure that we can meet the demands that you know the regulatory um, group is asking for the time and the population. Um, and you see this both to Karen's point, I mean, outside the US as well. It is it has just become such a fiasco trying to get through these hurdles that a lot of them just don't make sense. And so um, it's it's a problem and it's something that keeps, I know every CEO, every COO, um, probably every VP of a startup company from here across the globe up at night um, because we can't get you know our technologies that are really fantastic technologies and needed technologies to the, the patients that that really need them. So it's um it's a challenge and it, I, I don't really know what the answer is rather than, you know, just hopefully hope for the best and hope that we can get get some common sense going on that, you know, we need these medical technologies um, coming forth sooner than later. I might just add very briefly into that as well. And, you know, absolutely agree and agree with Karen's point. I mean, as a company that's bringing a device to market, you have to think who's going to pay for it. And you're, you're not going to be able to, to get it. Quite often, you're not going to be able to get it into the market that needs it most because there's going to be actually no traction. There's no way for you to actually fund it. Um, and if I look at kind of our area in, in maternal health, there are approximately 800 preventable maternal deaths every day. And that's from, um, you know, maybe slightly during or before, during, uh, or slightly after childbirth. Um, probably about 90% of those are in developing worlds. And, um, you, you know, we have to aim to get our product to the US first because we know that that's going to be, uh, and, and there's going to be a method of us getting it reimbursed and we're going to be able to hopefully grow and then maybe bring it to um, other nations and other, other, other territories. But I suppose we're relying for a lot of, I suppose, the developing countries, everyone is going to be relying on the Gates Foundation, UNICEF, uh, maybe the WHO. So there's only a limited amount of bodies or foundations that can fund um, devices or technology to get in. And quite often that's where it's most needed. But I think as Angie said, that has to change. And until there are new mechanisms of kind of breakthrough devices to get into, into the territories that need it most, um, uh, yeah, unfortunately, you know, it's going to be the, the same well-trodden path of going either U.S. or uh, Europe first uh, before those other countries. But, you know, even then, I can give you an example from, from Ocon. We have a product in the market for over five years um, that already has been inserted in over 130,000 women. Anything that could go wrong would have gone wrong by now. When we submitted to the FDA, the FDA said, you know, great, that's good. You know, that's good to know. <clears throat> Do a full pivotal study, 25 to $30 million, 1,400 women, three to five years. 
And you you think to yourself, wow, you know, $30 million, what I can do with $30 million, this is just one study uh, that we have to do where we already demonstrated the safety and efficacy of this product over a course of multiple years, over a course of hundreds of thousands of women. And so, you know, these things need to change because, you know, companies like, like Ocon, we, we can't afford to do these clinical studies, especially since we want to get so many of these therapeutics out into the market. Definitely. And with the lack of funding, it's obviously not ideal either, um, unfortunately. But um, so, yeah, I've got one more question, really, that I'd like to, to do on this subsection. And it's, um, it's Barry's touched on it a little bit about diversity. So um, what is the importance of creating diversity in women's health space and how can this be achieved? Sure. Um, and uh, I suppose, I think, again, referring back to those young um, companies that are in women's healthcare. Um, I know uh, Karen and I were both at, at the same conference in Paris a few weeks ago, and um, it was Med Femtech. And I suppose nearly kind of going back to the very first point of moving away from the, the Femtech space, but, you know, either using women's healthcare or at least med femtech is really kind of bringing in that kind of medical aspect of it. Um, but at the conference, I think one of the slides had stated that um, there's been a thousand fold increase in women's health companies founded in the last 10 years versus the previous 10 years. So that kind of just shows the trend of um, innovation that is happening in women's healthcare uh, now, again, a lot of those are, are early stage companies. A lot of them don't have a product on the market yet. However, they are covering a huge variety of, of spaces. We, I mean, we have mentioned, you know, fertility, menstrual health and, and maternal health um, of being kind of maybe amongst the, the, the top companies or the most amount of companies. However, menopause and loads of other areas are uh, now being tackled. And I suppose that's really important. So it's really positive that there is a huge diversity actually happening. However, people aren't seeing the products yet because they're still at the R&D phase. I'd like to talk about clinical studies. There's also a question in there about clinical studies and how we can you know, um, make sure that they are, are more diverse. So when you look at the challenges of fundraising and the challenges of product development and the challenges of the regulatory and market access and blah, 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 Believe it or not, we have a huge challenge to get these women into studies. Huge. They're busy. They're moms. They have uh, uh, careers. Um, they can't be bothered to, to do this or to do that. And a lot of women normalize some of their conditions. Okay, so it hurts. Okay, so I'm bleeding like an animal. Okay, and okay, and okay. And so when you get that uh, into clinical studies, you know, we only deal with women. And our clinical studies are only women. We don't need... Uh, diversity in terms of men and women. Uh, we do have a diverse population in terms of women. And it's also funny to see how women react to therapies and to procedures uh, here in Israel, in the United States, in Europe, in Eastern Europe. Uh, it's all very, very different um, and pretty uh, enlightening. Uh, but I got to say that, uh, you know, even when you do want to bring a diverse set of women into clinical studies, it's still difficult because they carry most of the weight at home and at work. Uh, very, very difficult. And so, you know, it's it's almost like uh, really building a sector uh, here that women need to hear about these products to be part of them, to get them to grow. And, you know, the investors need to be part of this ecosystem and to take some risk to say, all right, there hasn't been a whole lot of exits. There hasn't been a huge amount of investments, but I'm going to do this because I believe it's a blue ocean. We have everything needed to make, you know, a success. We have a huge market it's very uh, uh, non-competitive because there's not a whole lot of products out there to tackle all these diseases. You know, what more can investors look for when you look at such a huge market with such big diversity, with so many uh, conditions that are prevalent? Um, I think, uh, you know, the, the best is yet to come. Thank you. And uh, Angie, do you have any points just to finish off with on there? Yeah, I mean, you know, I agree with both Barry and Karen, um, you know, from the diversity aspect of it and both, you know, the diversity of of getting the women, you're right. I mean, Karen is exactly right. You know, I'm a full-time mom, full, you know, I work full-time and it's hard. It's hard to find time to squeeze in anything else. And, you know, and that's, that's the same for every woman across the world. Um, and so, you know, to be able to, 
to try to find a way to really engage women. I think it is important that we are able to bring them the information of the new technologies to get them excited. I mean, you know, since being in this space, goodness, whenever I first met Karen and heard about all the great things that Ocon was bringing, you know, hoping to bring to market, it was like, whoa, you know, I have a daughter and this is going to be her future, hopefully, you know, and same thing, you know, with, with Barry. I mean, any woman that has had to, has had a child. I mean, you go in not knowing if you're going to have to have a C-section, you know, some go ahead and, and choose to have that. Others leave it as a last resort option, but still like when you're, when you're giving birth, you want to make sure that you know that you're going to be safe. Your baby's going to be safe and you're having the best possible outcome. And so, you know, hearing, you know, hearing what, you know, Barry's company is bringing to market. I mean, that got me excited. It's part of the reason why I'm so invested in Alta Science with this permanent contraception, not just for the younger population of women who are coming along, you know, deciding that they don't want to have a family, which is perfectly fine. But, you know, for the women that's later in life that, you know, have already had their families and they don't want any more children, but they can't, they can't take hormones or they just don't do well with hormones. And, but they don't want to have surgery. They don't want to have tubal removal or tubal ligation. So it's, it's being able to hear about all of these things so that women like me can get excited about it and be like, yeah, I mean, this is, you know, it, if, if it can't happen for me because it's not going to make it in time, then if I have a daughter or if I have a niece or if I have somebody else that I really care about, you know, as a woman, this is their future. And um, you can't get excited about what you don't know. And that's probably the, the most frustrating thing is because you hear um, a lot of investors that want to shy away from these seed rounds. They want to shy away from the Series A rounds um, of investing before something is FDA approved. Well, we got to have the funding to get FDA approved. It's like, what comes first, the chicken or the egg? You know, we, we can't do one without the other. And so it's... Um, I just get really passionate about, you know, this topic because once you realize the different types of technologies that are just waiting, I mean, they are waiting. And to Karen's point, a lot of these technologies are going to be first to market. There's no competition. And I don't know, I'm an investor. I invest in medical device companies and have for a long time. I mean, you better believe one of the things that get me gets me most excited is knowing that the the market opportunity is there. Number one, if there is a huge unmet need. Women want it, the doctors want it, and you're not going to have any competition. Like, I mean, it's like serving it up on a silver platter. Then if, if we have a technology and we know that we we can prove that it works and that it's great, then help us get it here so these women can have it. Jordan, can I jump in on, on one very last point on that same topic just before we move on? And it, it, it kind of goes to the end of that question of, you know, how can this be achieved as well? And I mean, following on from exactly what uh, Angie and Karen said, of if we shout about what the figures and the facts out there are telling us, and this is a, a stat that the World Economic Forum, who I know Karen is involved with, um, they state that um, an investment of $300 million into women's healthcare-focused research will generate about a $13 billion economic return um, based on improved healthcare outcomes, uh, improved productivity, etc. So, I mean, it really makes financial sense at a global scale for more and more R&D to be spent in women's healthcare. Um, and, and so is the same with regards to investment into these companies because they will generate a return. They will do well in business if they're, I suppose, given that fuel to get to market. Well, fantastic. Well, thank you for adding that in there, Barry. Uh, we're actually going to, we've got a couple of questions in the Q&A that are actually going to fall into the reimbursement section that we was going to discuss. So I'm actually going to only ask one of the questions that we uh, that we wanted to ask at the start. So 
Um, in terms of the barriers that prevent a women's health devices, um, what could be done to make these more widely accessible in terms of reimbursement? Uh, do you want to start off with us, Karen? I think uh, I think you're quite strong on this topic. Yeah, well, um, you know, we've seen uh, in Europe, for example, we have one market, only one market that is reimbursed with our legendary product. Um, I can tell you the distributor or our partner there um, uh, bought enough product to last for two years. They completely sold that off in a few months. Uh, women want to have access and they want to have products reimbursed. They don't want to pay out of pocket for things that, you know, um, other people can get because these are health concerns. And so um, I, I don't know what there is that we can do, but I really believe that lobbying and being able to progress um, uh, regulatory uh, um, pathways. I was in uh, Japan last year. Uh, I was invited to speak in front of the parliament and I thanked um, you know, the parliament members for allowing our product to be fast-tracked, which is three years. Uh, and they said, yeah, thank you very much. Thank you very much. And I said, but just so you know, Viagra <laughs> took six months. And so that's what I mean. You know, if you have a product um, that is important to the people in that territory, uh, governments can do things to speed up uh, approvals and and put a little bit more money and um, reimbursement around uh, products. They have to show that they work. They have to show that they're safe. They have to show that they add value. I agree. Um, but uh, I'm I'm really a little uh, baffled here because um, on one hand, it's very difficult to get reimbursement. We tried in the UK, for example, to get reimbursement. They wanted to pay us the price of what it costs us to make the product. <laughs> you know, so um, it, it's, it's very frustrating in that sense. Uh, for now, women across the world need to pay out of pocket to get some of our products. Um, we're working on that to make sure that these are therapeutics. So they have a code, for example, like in the United States. Uh, but it's a long journey. It's a very, very long journey. I believe there are codes and we can create codes, but this will all take uh, a, a fair well amount of time. Cool. Do you want to go next there, Angie? Yeah. So uh, reimbursement. I have. I feel like I have lived and to breathe reimbursement here in the U.S. in multiple aspects for so many years. Um, it's difficult here in the U.S. with with reimbursement, especially for a new technology that's coming to market. I mean, you know, our first approach is always trying to look to see if there are existing CPT codes that are already there that we can kind of piggyback on. But, you know, that is something that definitely takes um, someone that is well-versed in the reimbursement landscape to make sure that you're not getting too far in a gray area. Um, and because if you have to go about it with trying to get your own CPT code and then try, you know, try to get a value assigned to that, it's a long, tedious process. So you can go through all of this work for, you know, five years, six years, trying to get FDA approval or 510K approval only to have another two years trying to get a daggone CPT code. And even then, even then, just because you have a CPT code and because it's reimbursement, then it doesn't mean that it's covered. Then you have all the different insurance companies here in the US from Blue Cross Blue Shield, United Healthcare, those are just your majors. And then I think there's over, well over 300 different um, healthcare policies in the United States. And if you're not on policy and if you're not listed as a covered entity on that, it doesn't matter. You're, it's not going to be covered. You're going to be paying out of pocket. And so for here, for the U.S., I think, you know, the I think there needs to be definitely a, a revision of what it takes to be able to get a CPT code number one um, and how that whole process works. But then aside from that. Um, the most frustrating is working with the insurance companies. The insurance companies create their own local coverage determination policies. And these are often written by people that have no idea what, what women's health is. I mean, they're writing a policy for, you know, maternal health, for example, and they're a podiatrist. And that's true. I mean, it's, it's very frustrating. And so, um, you know, they, it starts here and how to get proper reimbursement is, is I think, you know, at the heart of it, definitely with the insurance companies of trying to get 
the folks that are responsible for creating these local coverage determination policies or even the national policies with these insurance companies to number one, be of the industry in which they are truly um, writing these things for or, or weighing in heavily on and not making it so daggone difficult. I mean, my goodness, if you went through FDA, you've had to go through a rigorous process that should be sufficient enough to meet what criteria, or at least the majority of the criteria you need to be covered on an insurance policy in in this country, period. Uh, and what I'd like to do is actually move on to a couple of the questions that we've got for the Q&A. Um, so firstly, I've got a question in from Gavin Cooper. Um, so Gavin's question is, does the panel believe that due to low reimbursement levels in women's health space, does this contribute to the lack of investment? I don't think it's low reimbursement, right, uh, Barry? I think it's a matter of, of what is the reimbursement, especially when yeah. you have products that are new. Uh, absolutely. And I think it probably comes down to, like, I suppose, a lot of the maybe technologies that are coming to market now are, are new or novel. And I think what's going to be every startup's best friend is data. And all of us need to be kind of thinking of if we're bringing a device to market, we need to be able to stack up that kind of economic cost benefit analysis so that you can put a really good package in front of you know whoever the payer is going to be whether it's the hospitals insurance companies medicaid um you really just need to be able to prove what difference that you're going to make uh so i think starting kind of i suppose your your clinical pathway with that in mind that you really are going to have to prove out your value proposition to a number of different stakeholders um, I think that's going to help with the reimbursement, but again, it, it comes down to who's going to pay. And because there's a lot of kind of novelty coming out now, uh, and never even mind, I suppose the whole digital space. That's I suppose a you know a, a headache for for a lot of I suppose uh, people in the reimbursement area, um, and people are kind of just trying to navigate that pathway now. But you know, when it comes to devices specifically, if you're looking for reimbursement codes. There really has to be data there to back it up. Cool, fantastic. Anyone else want to, to add to that one? Um, I mean, ag ag agreed to what Barry was saying. I know like here in the US, if there's like existing CPT codes um, that you're trying to, you know, trying to tack onto or anything like that, it's just important to be able to really get your societies involved, to get your physicians involved, because usually every year when those insurance policies come up, for, um, for renewal, those, there's always like a comment period um, or um, for, the, for the CPT codes for them to be looked at to see what value they are giving because sometimes CMS will reduce um, the payment rate as we saw years ago whenever I was in the vein industry. I mean, we saw a yearly decline of the reimbursement for vein ablations, for example. And every mm -hmm. single year it was knowing whenever um, that time period was to get the physicians on board, making sure they were signing in to CMS and providing their comments on that comment period, um, advocating for a higher reimbursement. So if you are trying to tap onto a CPT code and you're wanting the higher reimbursement, it's being able to engage with the physicians the, um, that are going to be utilizing that to make sure that they're advocating with CMS for a higher C, uh, a higher uh, payout on that CPT code. And then the same thing whenever you are going to um, go for a CPT code, if you're trying to get it for the first time, um, to your to your point, Barry, data is unbelievable. I was just talking to a reimbursement um, specialist yesterday who I've known for a very long time, worked with, she's phenomenal. And, you know, we were in, in agreement that, you know, you really need to look at um, anything in the market that could even be slightly uh, in, in your space, see if there's any type of in things that's been listed as investigational, experimental, see what the insurance policies are saying that they're lacking. And as you start out on your clinical trials, have that in mind so that you can be tackling that. Um, because it's, it's, it's a dual pathway to this stuff. And you have to have your societies involved. You have to get you know, key opinion leaders involved in advocating for higher reimbursement because your reimbursement is really based on not just the cost of the device and the cost of the overall things that are in that procedure, but it's also based on 
the procedure time and the work detail from that physician. All of that is put in um, as far as here in the, in the United States of how a reimbursement is calculated. Fantastic. Thank you very much there for finishing us off there, Angie. Um, questions come in that I, I actually really like the look of, and uh, it's, have you noticed any positive trends in the recent years that would indicate or encourage an increasing interest amongst VCs to invest in women's health? Uh, I'll jump in very quickly and just say, yeah, I, th I think it is positive. And I think um, you can look at the various acquisitions that are happening. I think that's exciting investors. And, you know, when they see that there is a good bit of M&A activity um, and you've, the likes of Organon spinning out of Merck, very exciting, but it is only one company at the end of the day that, you know, uh, hundreds and hundreds of, of women's healthcare startups are all trying to talk to. Um, so there needs to be more activity like that. There needs to be more uh, M&A activity, but I think that is a very positive start. So you've got, you know, a big public listed, massive multinational company that is purely focused in women's health and that are planning on, you know, developing all of their new portfolio through acquisitions. That excites investors. And I think more of that just needs to happen. Right. I, I also want to agree. I, I see a lot more interest from investors. At least they are now open to, to listen about women's health, open to listen about the different or the various prevalent conditions. They want to educate themselves more about the prevalence of these conditions. They talk to doctors around the world. You see a lot more interest. Uh, it's super exciting. I think that uh, we'll see a lot more of investments happening in the next few years. I'm sure of it. Um, hopefully, Ocon can lead the way. Uh, everybody talks about these horrible term sheets. I can talk about them too. <laughs> but um, but I, I really believe that you know investors are starting to um, to listen more. I think with the change also of a lot more women being in more uh, managerial and higher end positions within these venture capital firms is also very helpful. I can tell you that every single time we had an investor of a big VC look at us and had a woman analyst. I was I was so excited because I knew that in that instance it will go uh, through the through the channels that it needs to go through. So um, I believe that these things are are now uh, changing and progressing. Um, and I also think that again, as I mentioned, we really have to um, make sure we look at uh, our unique value proposition and where we fit in. Uh, and the story has to be super tight. We almost have to work a little harder. Uh, then the cardiology, then the ophthalmology, then the, the cancers to make sure that our story is tight, that we check every single angle, that we know what we're doing, that we can demonstrate leadership and demonstrate that we can bring, you know, um, milestones uh, for them to happen uh, so that, you know, the investors can trust us to get there. Um, they'll talk to the big companies, they'll talk to the doctors, they will talk to key opinion leaders, um, and then they'll get a little bit more um, risk averse uh, in order to come in a little earlier than to wait for us to, for our companies to really reach, you know, FDA and other big milestones that require a lot of money. And by the way, um, I can also talk about crowdfunding. You know, uh, it's a huge vehicle these days. Um, we, we did that in a certain way, uh, raised almost a million dollars from it very quickly in about three months. Um, you know, there's many different vehicles out there, um, grants uh, that are fantastic. Um, and so, you know, we don't always have to count on the bigger VCs uh, to help us um, at these earlier stages. Um, we can do SPVs, uh, Angie knows, um, mm -hmm. you know, there's a lot of uh, vehicles in order to, to get money into your company. I know all of them. I've opened all of them. I've used and exploited all of them. We raised close to $10 million uh, in the last year and a half. It's a lot of money. I don't talk about it because the checks are so small. It's almost you know, <gasps> exasperating, but um, you know, it is possible uh, to do. It's a lot of hard work. Uh, it's a lot of hard work, but uh, I think that the more we progress, uh, it would allow investors to really take that step um, and, and really, you know, come in and, and, and play in this space as well. Thank you, Karen. And I've, uh, another question's coming out. I'd actually probably like to start this off with you, Angie. Um, question from Laura, um, which was, with all the political challenges being faced by women in the US, how can we learn from global examples to improve healthcare equity for all women? Um, I thought with you being US-based, maybe you might have a bit more of a, a know-how into this. 
Okay. So thank you, Lauren. Yeah, the the landscape here in the U.S. sometimes gets crazy. It is crazy in regards to women. And, you know, what I would say is I think that there's just a lot to learn from women across the world um, as just saying true to themselves and really knowing what they want and going after it and making sure that they are you know, really staying staying focused on what's what's important to them and not getting so caught up in all of the outside just craziness that's going on. I think over here in the U.S., we tend to kind of want to get uh, or allow ourselves to get so involved in what everybody else is thinking of what um, should be important to women, what women should be, um, you know, asking for what we should be expecting and things like that and and I think that all that it does is it just prevents us from gaining the things that are valuable to us being at healthcare being at whatever so I, I don't see the same type from women outside in other in other parts of the world I don't see them getting so caught up in the political landscape or just in those conversations the way that women here in the U.S. tend to do. And um, so I think it's important to have a voice, absolutely. But I just think that um, we can take a lesson in staying true um, to ourselves as women and demanding you know, more out of um, our government, demanding more out of in just everybody in general as it relates to what we need as women, as it especially as it relates to our health, because we are a human being and we have needs and our, our bodies were made very uniquely and people need to understand we were made very uniquely and we have unique challenges that have to be faced and it's not for political discussion. I don't care. And this is my 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 thing. I don't care. Everybody can be talking over here, going back and forth, back and forth. I just want to know what can take care of me and my health at this moment. And that's where it needs to stay. And I feel like just women in other country, other country part of the world just have more of that mindset than what we do here. So we can learn a lot from that. I'd like to thank the panel again for their time and insights they provided during this discussion. I hope anyone who was interested in any of the points that were discussed during the episode could gain some valuable perspectives from the story. Check out the rest of our CM Conversation series for plenty more insights from industry leaders in and across the surgical market, as well as a range of other key topics and markets. Thanks again for listening. I've been your host, Jordan Bergen. Bye for now.